So one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it is, um, it speaks truthfully about human life. This doesn't always feel good, of course. It doesn't always um, make us, it doesn't always stroke us in the ways that we want to be stroked, but it is, in fact, what we need. We need, we need plain and honest talk, and the Bible gives us this. Take, for example, these words from Psalm 90, attributed to Moses. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Now, not the biggest upper in those, um, those words, but, but I think we'd have to say that these are um, a slightly grim but realistic picture of human life in a world that is tainted by sin. And they tell us clearly that trouble and toil is the norm for human existence. Trouble and toil. So the question that I want us to consider tonight as we come to God's Word is how do we deal with trouble in our lives? How do we deal with trouble? And before we look at the helpful response to this question given to us in Psalm 13 as we continue our journey through the Psalms tonight, we need to consider first two questions or two reasons that we have a hard time accepting the reality of trouble in our lives in the first place. One is cultural and one is Christian. So two reasons why we have a hard time accepting the the basic statement that Psalm 90 just gave us that trouble is the norm. The first one is that our culture panders to the reality that instead of plain talk that we get from the Bible, we actually prefer words that make us feel a lot better about ourselves, that stroke our egos, our our wrong-headed assumption that we are masters of our own fate. And this is what we get from our culture more and more consistently than anything else. We, get a cult, we, we live in a world of spin. So think for a moment about the, the sound bites of the advertising culture for just a moment. We're fed lies through words and images, um, untruths or half-truths, literally around the clock, everywhere we look, everywhere we see, everywhere we hear things, um, about what certain products are going to do for us, or certain things. So go on this Caribbean vacation, and all your troubles will just wash away with the sand on the seashore. Um, or buy this car and you'll feel really good that you're in power. You've got power control because it's, it's got 500 horsepower, something to that effect. Or one that's been more recent in, uh, in the media, drink five-hour energy drink. And you'll be chipper and productive every morning of your life. No wait, no hassle, just drink this drink and you'll be taken care of. So what all of this kind of constant message leads us to is this growing sense of entitlement in our lives. We deserve good health until we're 85. We deserve to feel good most days of our life. We deserve to be well-fed and cared for. We deserve a good job and a great education. The list goes on and on and on. And this growing sense of entitlement leads us to believe, somehow deep down, that we are immune to the troubles of the world. See how it works against the the biblical statement that we started with. So when actually when troubles do come, we, we actually get kind of indignant and feel like there's been a great injustice in the world, that somehow we were promised something different by virtue of the age in which we live. And certainly we breathe a rarefied air in the 21st century in the West um, compared to the vast majority of human beings who are alive today and who have ever lived. So that's the cultural work against. The, The Christian work against is something like this. For those of us in the church, there is an erroneous belief that because we believe, that because we belong to God, we will be insulated from the troubles of this world. So yes, we say we know that the world is full of trouble, we know there are issues going on all around us, but we've been rescued by God, and God wants his people to prosper. So in extreme forms, this is obviously known as the prosperity gospel. Believe in Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I don't 
believe that there are many of us in this room who would subscribe to that hook, line, and sinker and say, this is where I am. But the reality is that it lurks about in more subtle ways in most of our psyches. Because I belong to God, surely I won't get cancer. Because I'm adopted by grace, surely my marriage is going to be great and my kids are going to grow up faithful and healthy. And the list could go on and on and on. So the Bible and its plain talk and honest talk is the antidote to the poisons of cultural spin and erroneous teaching, as is any honest account of church history over the last 2,000 years. We're actually told that anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're told that we must take up our cross daily. We witness again and again the reality that God's chosen people are not spared the heartaches, the pain, and the losses, the trouble, ultimately, of this broken world of sin. So trouble is the norm for us in human existence after the fall. And now it's not the only um, situation that we find ourselves in all of the time. For example, there are psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of celebration. There are all kinds of different moments of human life. But the psalms of individual lament or petition are the most numerous psalms in the whole Psalter. 150 psalms, about 50 of them, are dedicated to this kind of individual lament and petition. So the question is, how do we respond to trouble? How do we deal with trouble when it sets in in our lives? And let me be clear, I'm using the word trouble in a pretty broad sense to indicate any time that we feel like life is not going the way that we would like it to go. We feel threatened, afraid, we feel insecure, out of control. And this can arise from a variety of situations in our lives, from outright persecution to bereavement to simply failed dreams or unrealized hopes and dreams. We've all been there, and I venture to say confidently that many of us are there right now tonight. So the question is, how do we respond to these situations of trouble in our lives? Well, let me start by saying what we don't do. I'll give you three things. One dead-end but all-too-common strategy for us is to medicate or amuse ourselves until somehow that we're convinced that the trouble is really not there. And so we do this a lot through, through movies or alcohol or internet surfing or endless trivialities. We just look the other way and numb the pain or the fear. But of course, this ultimately, while it may work in the short term, never helps us in the long run. It never helps us in the long run. Another dead-end strategy is to turn to our own resources, to, to look within, to buck up, to strategize, and face the troubles with courage, somehow thinking that we can get out of this mess. And obviously this works sometimes. We get a different job, we find another girlfriend, we nurse ourselves back to health. But eventually, if not now, at some point, we will encounter a kind of trouble too big for us and too big for our own resources. Most of us in this room have probably already encountered a kind of trouble like that. And if we remain entrenched in only attacking these things from the perspective of our own resources, despair will settle in into our hearts and it will be hard to shake off. And if no relief comes, then hardness ensues, and eventually we move forward, diminished, having part of ourselves literally just kind of cut off and numbed from everyone else and from the rest of the world. And we go on in that kind of silent suffering. So third option is actually to turn to others for help. A lot of us turn to politics, some to relatives, some to friends, and while each of these courses may be capable, again, of delivering at some level Ultimately, they're incapable of bearing the load of our lives and our troubles. Psalm 146.3 speaks directly to this and says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. There's no help there 
ultimately, really. So enter into the situation Psalm 13. The psalmist is facing great trouble. It's unclear what the specific situation that the psalmist is actually facing is. And and that lack of specificity is actually really meant to encourage all of us to use these words as a guide for us in times of trouble, which will vary according to our particular circumstances and and, and personalities. The trouble we do know is intense from verse 3. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's basically saying my endurance to endure what has been put before me, my patience to deal and to bear with what has been put upon me is running to its end. I'm running, I'm at the end of my rope, and if you, God, don't step in and help me in some real way, I'm going to die. So it's an intense. This is not like the the trouble that's just a nagging presence, kind of like sometimes my son can be to his sister Savannah when he's just sort of around and always there and kind of pestering and poking and pushing and prodding. This isn't that kind of trouble, which is, I would say, the normal kind of trouble that we are engaged engaged in as human beings. But rather, this is a consuming reality in the psalmist's life. This is pressing in upon him from every direction. It's laid on heavy and unable to be maneuvered around in his life. Have you ever been there? Are you there, perhaps right now? Instead of medicating himself or turning into himself or turning to others, the psalmist turns, and this is the, this is the brilliance of Psalm 13, is he turns to God. He turns to God. I vividly remember walking into my boss's office in my early 20s. I worked at a place called Noah's Ark. It was a whitewater rafting and adventure company in Colorado in the center of the Rockies. Sat me down on the couch with, the, with one of my coworkers, and then proceeded to tell me that my good friend and predecessor at this company had died in a tragic kayaking accident the day before in Gore Canyon on the upper Colorado River. Here was a, a humble man, a godly man, a well-loved young man, having just finished law school, taken the bar exam, and beginning to move into what he expected to be um, a useful career in the field of law. And in an instant, just like that, he was taken, obviously. At his funeral a few days later in Denver, at Southern Gables Church, I'll never forget um, the pastor of that church, this was his home church, a gifted Bible teacher, challenging the morning young congregation, me being a part of that, with this question. He said, where are you going to turn? Where are you going to turn? It was either to God, he said, or nowhere else. You could start to shake your fist in this moment of bereavement and frustration and tragedy, or you can turn to God. There was nowhere else to go, he said. That left a deep impression upon my heart that day. Never forgotten it. And that's exactly what the psalmist does in this moment of despair, in this moment of trouble. He turns, and he turns to the living God. Now, of course, there's another option. There's another option. I once asked the wife of a good friend of mine who himself is no longer a Christian, but was a Christian in his youth. And she also was not a Christian, and she came uh, to lose her faith as well. And I asked her, so how did you come to lose your faith? And, then, and she told me this. She said, I had a really hard year when I was in college studying abroad in France. Had some personal suffering that went on in, in my life. Saw some friends of mine suffer. And I just decided that life would be better without God and without having to kind of worry about that aspect of life. So I turned away from him and I've continued. And she's now continued in that hardening up to this day. There's another option. There is the place of a clenched fist shaken 
at the heavens that we can turn to. But it's ultimately a despairing one. It's a despairing one. Here are these words on, on this kind of petition from one biblical scholar. He says, by turning to God and addressing him, the petitioner shows his complete dependence on God. To look elsewhere for deliverance would be tantamount to idolatry. By turning to God and addressing him, the petitioner shows his complete dependence upon God. The first question I want you to wrestle with, just as you think about this in your own lives today, is when you are in trouble, and perhaps you're there right now, when you're in the kind of trouble that becomes all-consuming in your life, what happens to prayer in your life? I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, prayer is literally the first thing to go out the door. Really, I, I scheme, I strategize, I take counsel, I make phone calls, I do the best that I can in the situation that I'm in, sure, and I pray, but my prayer is more the perfunctory kind. You know what I'm talking about, the kind where it's sort of an obligatory just sort of chalk up something to God, rather than a heartfelt cry from the depth of who I am to the heavens, to the God who is there. The first lesson to take from Psalm 13 is simply the fact that Psalm 13 exists in a situation like this, of deep trouble. That David prays. He turns. He addresses God. It's so essential. In trouble, we're taught here to open our mouths and to pour out our hearts, as Psalm 62 says, before the Lord. And my prayer is that we would be a community that does this together, does it as individuals, but does it for one another when we can't do it ourselves, that we would be a community that's constantly crying out from trouble before the living God. So if we're to cry out, what are we to say? What are we to say to the living God when we're in these places of great trouble? And obviously, every situation of trouble is unique, but the pattern that's displayed here for us in this simple psalm, six verses, three couplets of two verses each, six verses, three sections, is instructive for us as the people of God today. First, we get this complaint section, the first two verses of Psalm 13. And the refrain of these two verses is, how long? How long? How long? How long? That's what he says. Four times the psalmist says that. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long? Luther described the mood of this psalm as the place where hope despairs and yet despair hopes at the same time. You can hear the desperation in the cry. How long? How long? God, I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel your absence. I feel like you've hidden your face from me. I feel like this is going to go on forever, and I know I can't bear it. Will I be stuck in this situation for the rest of my life? I seem to only be able to take counsel in my own heart. I seem to only be able to find sorrow in my own heart. There seems to be no escape. I just keep running this thing over and over and over again in my life, and I can't escape it. I can't get out from under it. How long, Lord? How long will this situation persist in my life? It's a situation where the clouds follow the rain. If any of you lived in Boston in, Ju in July, June of 2009, we had one of those months where the clouds just followed the rain, and the rain came, and the clouds come, and the rains, and the clouds. It was like 25 days out of the 30 were just rain, rain, this kind of pouring rain. It was as if every day was like a cloudy and rainy day, a bit like earlier today. But what was going on in the weather in June of 2009 was going on in this psalmist's heart at this point in his life. And he tells God, how long, O oh Lord? How long? 
Do you speak to God with this kind of honesty when you're in trouble? Can you register your complaints to him from a place of faith? In times of trouble, this kind of honest complaint, this honest wrestling with God is precisely what is needed, precisely what the Psalms give us permission for in our lives. This is not an indignant, scornful rebuke of the Almighty God, by the way, either. And there is a fine line and a distinction there. It's a humble and desperate expression of faith and dependency, absolute dependency. And we need to learn to cry out to God in this way, to issue our complaints, register our complaints before him. He is big enough and and great enough to deal with us. He calls us to pour out our hearts before him. And these complaints in verses 1 and 2 lead then to petition in verse 3. And here we find him pleading with God to consider and answer him. And he lays claim to God in this verse and says, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, my God. That's important in this psalm. Answer me, my God. I have a claim upon you. You are my own God. I'm your son. I belong to you. You've made a covenant with me. You've bound yourself. You've pledged yourself to me. Consider and answer me, my God. From that place of trouble, he lays claim to the Almighty God as his own God. He is Yahweh, my God. And he asks God to do what? To light up my eyes. That is, to strengthen my faith. To give me yourself and your perspective. Matthew Henry writes this, Nothing is more killing to a soul than want of God's favor. Nothing more reviving than the return of it. He's in want. He's he's missing. He's in desperate need of, of God's favor. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 63 declaring, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If there's no water in a dry and weary land, I'm about to to die of, of thirst. And I'm longing for you with that kind of intensity. Light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. Help me to see again with faith the clarity of your love for me. And then he says these three less, 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 um, you know, lest I die, lest my enemies rejoice, lest my foes kind of mock me and mock you. There's something really added to the sincerity and the power of this prayer in that it's not simply for the psalmist, just about him and his own situation. But it's bigger than that. It's about God, and it's about God's name and and honor and glory. And he's saying, God, I want you to, to hear me and to light up my eyes that you might receive glory in all the world and that my enemies, who are also your enemies, might be put to shame. That's praying broadly in this case, out of trouble. So do we in times of trouble cry out to God with this kind of desperateness, with this kind of urgency? Is he so clearly the answer to our situation that we long for him with all that we have? This is where trouble leads. It's true that the brilliance of God's glory often shines most brightly in the darkness of our own trouble and suffering, our dark nights of the soul. It's just a truth. It's a reality. I've seen it time and time again with people in times of suffering and pain. We've all witnessed probably those in, in, seeming, in, in great trouble, seemingly um, developing a greater clarity of the goodness and the power and the sufficiency of God when everything else around them in their life begins to kind of crumble. Some of you have been there in your own lives. I know that you share those things with me. In a world of trouble, trouble, then, whether we're in the thick of it right now or not, we should be encouraged to cry out to God with this kind of desperation and dependency. He is life itself, a fountain of life, Psalm 36 says. And not to have him is to despair of life. 
So sure, we can turn to the stuff of the world, we can turn to our health, we can turn to our achievements, we can turn to worldly praise, we can turn to our intellect, we can turn to the comfort of our family, of our friends, but the reality, and this is a reality, and I say this with, with fear and trepidation in many ways, is that all of this could be wiped out in an instant. In the blink of an, of an eye, with one phone call, with one doctor's visit, with one bike ride, with one car journey, we know that. We know that. Many of us have lived that. And in a situation like that, it's foolish to put the weight of our lives upon these other things. It's foolish to put the, the locus of our identity into these other things. It's foolish to put them in anything else, ultimately, other than in God himself other than in God himself. So after complaint and petition, in in verse 5, the psalmist turns as we bring this to a close. The tone changes, and he turns to praise. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's not that his prayer somehow is psychologically soothing in some sort of psychological mumble-jumble kind of way, but rather that in an exercise of, of absolute dependency, in an exercise of, of honesty before the living personal God, he has cried out before the Lord, and the Lord has heard his cry in the midst of his cry, that somehow this exercise of being brutally honest with the Almighty God has led him to a new place where God has in fact lightened his eyes. So much so that he now begins to praise the God of heaven and the God of earth, his God, and to refute his own questions from the first two verses of the psalm. God, will you forget me forever? He's come to a new place at the end. Sure, we experience the absence of God in our lives. That's absolutely true. That's biblical. That's a reality. Sure, we find ourselves in deep places of trouble, more often than we would like to be. But the reality is is that God has pledged himself to us. God has given himself for us. However you walked into this place tonight, God stands, and as we see visibly acted out before us in the sacrament of the Lord's table, God pledges again and shows you again the depth of his commitment to you and to me. That he is a God of steadfast love, as the psalmist says. I've trusted in your steadfast love. He is a God of salvation. He's a God who has made a way through a world of trouble to have peace and security and rest. And he is a God, as the psalmist ends, who has dealt bountifully with me. God has dealt bountifully with me. Now note, the psalmist is still giving his cry to the Lord. His circumstances have not yet changed. He's not yet been delivered out of the trouble which started the the prayer, the cry, at the beginning. But God has come to him in power and in grace and ministered to his heart in a meaningful way such that he's now able to open his eyes again and see with clarity again the fact that God has not forgotten him, but God has dealt bountifully with him. And God, let me declare to all of us tonight, has dealt bountifully with you and bountifully with me. 
That's what we see forever inscribed in reality through as we look at the cross of Jesus. God has dealt bountifully with us, his people. God has dealt bountifully with us. So as Church of the Cross, as we look to the future, we know that, that we will have trouble individually that will come. We will face things. You will face things. I will face things. These situations will not be, we will not be insulated from the world of trouble. That is our context in a world of brokenness and sin. But I pray that we will cry out to God. That we will utter our complaints before God. That we will petition Him with the desperation of the psalmist in Psalm 13. And that by His grace, that God will meet us in that place. He will lighten up our eyes. That even in the context of that great trouble, and maybe for you, wherever you are in that trouble right now, that you will see and that I will see the bounty, the steadfast love and the salvation of a God who has given Himself for us. Amen.